This week, the farmer who's half in and half out. No, not Brexit, but of DEFRA's new higher-risk zones for avian flu. They have to be called barm eggs. Now, obviously, there is a financial penalty to us um, if we sell them for barn instead of free-range. Um, free-range eggs are a premium product, um, and so it, it would affect our farm financially. And amid uncertain times, we meet the grain dryer specialists who've just expanded. What we're finding is that long-term investments are still being made, and that's still very important because looking over farming over a short term is uh, not always the best point of view. Sunday, February 12th, 2017. This is The Farming Programme with Sean Dunderdale. Good morning. As you may have heard in the week, the ongoing problem with avian flu is bringing real concern over the future of free-range poultry producers, with many facing serious threats to their business. You'll remember since last December, all bird owners have been ordered to keep them indoors. That restriction could soon be lifted, though it would still be enforcing what's now known as higher risk zones, outlined this week by DEFRA. It means producers in those areas will soon, no longer by law, be able to sell free-range eggs or meat. Instead, they'll be known as barn eggs. Alison Pratt is from the National Farmers Union. It looks as if it's areas where there are lots of wild birds, particularly waterfowl and gulls. So that's the coast, and particularly also looking at it areas where there is inland water, so big lakes um, and uh, areas of water that would attract um, gulls and waterfowl. Um, This is the danger that um, the disease is still circulating in the wild bird population. There's still a high risk that it could get to domestic birds and um, we've got to stop them getting together. Initially the worry was about migrating birds, wasn't it, kind of landing on the east coast from from mainland Europe Um, and and the feeling now then by the sounds of it is, as you say, it is in those, those birds, those gulls or whatever it might be, those wild birds that are near waterways really. Yes, that's the danger. Um, I think the um, the risk is still very much there and that I think is what producers of all sizes, again saying whether you've got two birds or 20,000, you must think whether your birds should be protected. And that applies whether you're going to be in one of these new high-risk areas or the low-risk area. The risk could still be there in what DEFRA is terming the low-risk area. And in, in the high-risk areas then, it will be all all birds won't it you know if you've got two chickens that you keep at home or you are a large poultry farmer they must be kept indoors Uh, unless you can net the range okay Um, and for a commercial producer that's going to be nigh on impossible um, because the size of a commercial um, free range house uh, would mean that the numbers of birds would need hectares of ranging land and you can't net hectares of ranging land. Um, the free range rules still apply, the welfare rules still apply. Um, you still have to allow them the full access to their whole range and to net that area would just be impossible. Now you touched there on the uh, the, the free range poultry producers. Mm. I mean this could have a devastating effect for them couldn't it? Yes, for those who are in the high-risk area, um, the loss of the free-range status could mean uh, a huge effect on their business. Um, NFU all the time is talking to um, our friends in the retail chain, uh, talking to all the big suppliers, all the people who buy eggs all the way up the chain and process them. We're talking to them all the time to to, to sort of um, try and get a consensus about what could happen if we're not allowed to have uh, free-range status back. And that looks as if it could now be the case for a significant number of producers in the country. And are you getting any any messages of support back? Is there any indication how it might go? 
Um, I think retailers understand the situation. After all, they want to, um, you know, maintain their supplies of eggs. What, of course, we can't do is to sell them as free range um, after the 28th of February if they come from housed birds. That's European law. Um, again, NFU's been talking in Europe to the European Commission um, and to our fellow farming organisations all over Europe to try and come to some sort of a decision about this. But the plain truth is that avian influenza is there. It's uh, an in it's a virulent bug, um, H5N8. If it gets into your poultry, it will kill them. And we must keep it out of the uh, domestic flock and out of our commercial flocks if we possibly can. Alison Pratt of the NFU. Charles Lowe is a free-range producer, though uh, looking at the map, Charles, you're half in, half out of one of the proposed high-risk zones, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, that's right. So in, in principle... Um, the government have agreed by the end of February um, we can let our free-range birds out um, unless you are specified in a high-risk zone. Um, we, unfortunately, are half in and half out of a high-risk zone, so um, the detail um, essentially means that we can call our birds free-range again and they can, can be let out onto the range. That, that must be a, a welcome relief, obviously, over the last uh, few weeks, having to, to keep the birds indoors. Free range is all important to a business like yours, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and what the government have said is that the risk is still high. Um, avian flu is still present in the environment. Um, everybody must maintain strict biosecurity, um, limit vehicles on and off the farm, limit movement around the chickens themselves. But some areas are higher risk than others. Um, and so the government has yeah, suggested um, various measures in those um, zones, um, such as keeping the birds in um, for a further length of time to protect them. Have that zone been slightly more in, if you like, in, if your farm had been within that zone fully, what kind of effect would that have had to a farm like yours? Housing the birds um, for more than 12 weeks. So they've been inside since the 6th of December. We were forced to keep them in. Um, the 12 week um, expires on the end of February and so after that length of time they have to be called balm eggs now obviously there is a financial penalty to us um, if we sell them for balm instead of free range um, free range eggs are a premium product um, and so it, it would affect our farm financially so thankfully not by the looks of things anyway and we hope nothing changes um, but I, I guess uh, has there been an impact over the last 12 weeks or so you know since they they have been indoors you've obviously still been able to sell the eggs but for the chickens themselves you know they naturally want to be outdoors don't they chickens do naturally want to be outside they're free-range birds and they love to be outside we as farmers want the chickens outside because it's what we're, we're used to seeing and it's what the chickens are used to doing but they've coped remarkably well actually we um we uh, inside the sheds we have an area where we like them to scratch um, and dust bathe. Um, so we've been maintaining those areas with a lot of um, wood chip and straw and trying to promote that natural behaviour. Um, so yeah, they, they seem they seem fine being inside. Um, we would love them to be outside as soon as we can, but. Um, they cope well being inside. Free range poultry producer Charles Lowe, half in, half out, shake it all about, do the hokey cokey. Uh, it's an issue I know we will return to, especially as we get nearer to the end of the month. Now, time for uh, our weekly update from our friends at uh, Open Field and a welcome return of uh, Chris Spratt. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. Thank now, you Chris, very much. last time you were on the programme, it was Boxing Day, you were singing yep, on the right. pantomime, yeah. and I think you've been in hiding since. But I, you're, you're... I have, yeah. If anybody <laughs> out there has had cellulitis, 
then I, I really do feel for you because that's what's uh, taken uh, taken hold of me for the past month. But uh, you're back getting now. back there now, fighting fiction. Well, it's on, good, yeah. good to see you. Thank back. you very much. Yeah. So what's uh, what's happening then? Um, well, interesting. Really, there was a USDA uh, report came out on Thursday night. Um, I think most of the announcements there were probably anticipated by the trade. Really, um, there was a cut uh, of uh, 4.7 million tons from the January estimate of of, of wheat. Um, of stocks, um, and I think that mainly came from an idea that they'd cut Indian stocks by 3 million tonnes. I think the trade probably anticipated that a while ago. And also in Kazakhstan, um, there was reductions there. So, you know, just a little bit of topping and tailing in various places, really. Uh, domestically, I think, well, little fresh news, really. market appears to be tight on the old crop, but we do need to keep a watchful eye on that currency and on any potential imports or alternative commodities displacing UK feed wheat as we get to the final, final quarter of the season, anyway. Uh, internationally, as with any big crop, uh, logistics are always there to try and cause an issue. And in Australia, the first grumbles are, are being talked about about l- the lack of logistical shipping slots. Uh, and, and basically, uh, you get into a situation where you can buy the grain out there. We've got a big crop of, of most commodities, but it's no use if you can't finally find a place to ship it from to put it on a ship. Uh, in Australia, I think over the next few weeks, they're going to have to decide really what's most important, milling wheat to India before they close the doors in March and they get their new crop coming through. Oilseed rape into the EU, which we know is a good price at the moment. Malting barley to China, wheat to Indonesia or feed barley to Saudi. Contract prices will dictate that and the shorts, you know, who, who thought that Australia may well give uh, cargoes away fairly cheaply this season might have to be looking elsewhere. Domestically in the UK... Uh, UK bread making values still remain under pressure uh, with little if any premium dependent on area feed barley, well the recent Saudi tender there was fixed for 1.5 million tonnes for uh, execution between March and May Uh, if we take into account the freight and the extra shipping costs and and related that back to an ex-farm UK price that would be around about 117 to 118 ex-farm I think there'll be plenty of competition to supply into that market from Argentina, Canada, uh, EU, Black Sea, Australia. It's a total of 30 you know, big ships over a, over a few months' period. Um, but spread around internationally, I don't think it's going to make too much of an impact. But it might put a floor in the market for any country that, has, that you know, can do the spec and has got the tonnage. UK barley domestically is trading about four to six pounds above that level at the moment. We're now starting to see uh, domestic market take support from uh, middle market buyers on the malting barley. And, uh, you know, we've still got, a, obviously, a, a volatile sterling. So what we're seeing at the moment is domestic values on the old crop actually nudge ahead of the export market. We could, of course, see some correction if shorts get filled in as consumers, I think, really will want to uh, sit back uh, if they get half a chance and try and take a bit of sting out of the market. If we take a look at the crop uh, malting barley that's about to go in the ground, well, consumers are sticking with their views for the time being that a larger crop will mean lower prices, um, and we'll have to see about that. Long way to go yet. Further afield, um, if we look at the malting barley sort of scenario on a bigger basis, uh, the uh, USD export figures for uh, Canada and Australia have been released, and they're re- you know reflecting the record export numbers for both countries. The Canadian crop was uh, around about a 7% increase on the prior year, even on a lower harvested area. On the back of that, Canada's exports are forecast to rise 40% over last year. 
Australia is expected to export a, a record 7.5 million tonnes of barley. 2 million tonnes of that will be malting out of a total crop of 11 million tonnes, the main home being into China. I think, you know, from a grower's point of view, it, certainly if I was in that seat making decisions, I'd, I'd be certainly looking at these malting barley uh, premiums on the further forward and maybe an opportunity, not an opportunity I'd, I'd be missing, really, uh, both for uh, any barleys that are left for 16 crop, for 17 crop, and in actual fat for 18 crop, crop as well. Oilseed rate values slightly off the highs, buyers reducing their bids or trying to, the seller's willingness to offer any volumes capped any significant fall. French Farm Ministry this week's warned that their crop is in poor condition and that might be replaced with alternative crops in the spring. So, you know, we're still looking as though we might see a bit of downward, downward revision there. Uh, they're already forecast to be 5% term below the average due to dry weather during the autumn planting. So in the UK, well, and in Europe, fundamentally, rapeseed supplies are tight uh, and look like they're going to remain that way for the rest of the season. Uh, the bean market, well, that continues to be firm, 160 to £162 pound X, achievable in most areas for Feb-March, and a couple of pound more for May. That firmness is being driven, really, by short covering in the spot position and lack of sellers. A lot of growers sat out there with uh, with human consumption beans, are looking for a premium, but in actual fact, at this moment in time, the human consumption market is getting towards the end of the season as far as that's concerned. There's better quality available from Australia once it can get shipped, and old crop sales into North Africa at the minute are being shipped from the Baltic states. If we were able to make export sales to Egypt, uh, I think given the firm feed price at the moment, we'd probably only be looking at two to three pound premium. And as the weeks tip by, it looks like less and less likely that we'll see any significant volume demand. Uh, and that really means the feed heap will get bigger. Uh, but nevertheless, it's not all bad news. That, that feed price is almost as good as most people have been selling human consumptions for for the rest of the season. And if you just have a quick look at the supply and demand, uh, we still could end up with maybe 100,000 tonnes of beans floating around in the system uh, looking for a market. Just a quick look at prices. Feed week for March, 145 to 148, with May, 147 to 150 X farm. Harvest, feed wheat, 127 to 130, with November 17, 131 to 134. As I mentioned, old crop premiums for Group 1 milling wheat now in, in low single digits, uh, with new crop quoted 12 to £15 pound over feed. Feed barley for March, 121 to 124, plus £2 for May, with harvest 10650 to 10850, and November 112 to 115. As I mentioned before, good premiums for malting barley and, you know, if you can rest assured you can grow the, the quality, certainly worth looking at. All seed rate for March, uh, trading in the region of 352 towards the end of the week with May at 354 and harvest at 315 to 320 and November 17, 325 to 330. And I think just looking at all the UK crop pricing structures the remainder of the season, the old crop is at a premium to new crop. And we haven't seen that for the last year or two. So consumers will be watching the old crop prices and the new crop supply and availability situation, not wishing to take on too much expensive old crop on today's market. So really the supply side needs to be a little bit cautious not to let that old crop premium slip away into the new crop values. Thank you, Chris. Good to have you back. Thank you. Thanks, Chris Pratt from Open Fields. In a moment, we'll stay with grain, really. We'll meet the grain drying and storage specialists who've just expanded into new premises. Let's get our uh, weekly update from the other Sean, Sean Sparling, shall we, of Sparling Agronomy Services, out and about once again. Yes, good morning, Sean. I thought I'd start this week, um, just out of the blue, talking about the weather. 
thought we'd have a change. Uh, I sit here on top of the walls recording this, and I'm in the jaws of a blizzard. Uh, the land looks like the top of that cake at the beginning of the Great British Bake Off with a very light dusting of icing sugar on it, and I've already seen three cars in the ditch. So uh, be careful out there. Uh, it is treacherous. I would call this, it's not snow and it's not drizzle, it's more like snizzle. So just be careful, and I really don't know how they cope in countries like Switzerland when they get more than a millimetre of snow at any one time. But it does sort of help a little bit because it's a bit of a nothing time of the year for spraying. Uh, February, and you, you get these weather conditions. If it's Atlantis that you've got to put on winter wheat, then you just need to make sure that you're putting it on, A, to a dry leaf, and B, that in cold conditions like this, and bear in mind your soil temperatures are down below 3 degrees, so you're not going to get a lot of active growth and movement, despite the fact they do look like they're green up on these sunny days. It's more the chlorophyll fluorescing than it is active growth because of that soil temperature inhibiting growth. Um, so you need to make sure you get four hours to dry the chemical onto the leaf, because if you've got no growth, the longer it gets to stick onto the leaf, the more chance it has to get in when the plant starts to grow. If you've got a wet leaf or it comes dewy or snowy or snizzly or rainy, within that four hours, it'll wash the Atlantis off the leaf. And then by the time the black grass starts to grow, there's nothing there to kill it. So timing is crucial. What I've always found is that if you've got Atlantis to apply in the spring or Pacifica for that matter, if you wait until the soil temperature has been above five degrees for at least five days, and then in that following seven-day period after that five days you get the Atlantis on, you probably stand the best chance of doing a good job. If you go on in these conditions and it stays inclement and we get more snizzle or more rain, potentially it's going to wash it off and it's not going to do the job. It's expensive stuff, so you want to get the most out of it. And, of course, all the other things still apply. 12K maximum forward speed, uh, fine medium spray quality, keep your water volumes right, make sure you're using the right boom height, the right nozzles, everything needs to be with you and you get that period of dry weather and you should be OK. If the Atlantis is still capable of killing that black grass, it will do a job. But the more things you have that are right the more chance you have of doing a good job. Oilseed rape, remember that your threshold for light leaf spot applications is one plant in seven. Um, many of the varieties now have um, reasonable resistance, but they're only sixes and sevens. And if it's a bad year for light leaf spot, it needs dealing with. So if you're finding it on more than one plant in seven, you need to deal with it. And pick a fungicide which is capable of giving you a bit of foamer control and alternaria control as well. Don't just go for a light leaf spot material. And remember, you only have protection against light leaf spot. I keep saying this, but it's quite important because if you found it today and you went out and sprayed today and it stayed cold, the light leaf spot isn't going to move for the next three or four weeks. Therefore, what's the point of putting the fungicide on? That's what you've got to think about. Every penny needs to be accounted for and every penny you spend needs to bring you two back or else it's not worth doing. I'm just biding my time. I'm not finding light leaf spot levels at that rate so i'm just holding back at the moment and watching things and also start to think about um grass weed control supplementary grass weed control in your oilseed rape if your propizomide has been on and you're not happy with the result you can still use carbetamex until the end of february but remember that i don't believe there's any backing from all parties on that sequence so if you have a problem speak to your advisor make sure they understand that and make sure everything's safe for you and safe for the crop um, and then moving thinking on really to spring cropping um, don't just dismiss peas and beans because the growth margins 
beans aren't very good. Think about the benefit that peas and beans bring to the rotation, not just the greening payment, but also a little bit of extra yield in perhaps next year's wheat crop if you're following them with wheat. That might be a good thing if the price of wheat starts to rise um, and the benefit you get to the soil from the nutrient and the organic matter and the nitrogen release, etc, etc. So there's a lot of things being talked about in offices. NMAXs should now all have been done. Um, it's, it's something you have to have in place. Just sit back and fine tune, do some costings, work through the costs of mixes, the costs of fungicides and try and build a strategy now while times are slow. Because I can assure you that once spring kicks in, it's going to start and it won't stop. Uh, spring will be here before we know it indeed. Thank you, Sean Sparling of Sparling Agronomy Services. MacArthur Agriculture is holding its open day this week. Well, open two days, actually, Wednesday and Thursday, a chance to celebrate uh, its recent expansion into bigger premises. John MacArthur is Managing Director there. Yeah, it's a very exciting time for us. We've uh, recently moved to a a larger new premises, and uh, that's enabled us to broaden our offering on the uh, grain storage and processing equipment that we supply. What about the history of uh, MacArthur? Tell us a bit about it. So we originally grew from a farm diversification in the 1990s. It was led by my father and uh, now myself and my brother Scott have uh, followed him into the company and uh, really taken it uh, on from there. And you say obviously expanding with the uh, the new premises at Flixborough. Yeah, it's uh, given us a lot more covered space so we can do a lot more of assembly work and we're also able to offer the continuous flow dryers and also the uh, on-floor grain drying systems as well. And so really it's uh, enabled us to uh, take a big step forward. And how is business at the moment? Uncertain times as we keep saying in farming. Business okay though? Business is very good. It's it's good to be broader with uh, a wider product line. what we're finding is that uh, long-term investments are still being made and that's still very important because uh, looking over farming over a short term is uh, not always the best point of view. Mm-hmm. No, I know what you mean though. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it is better to look at the long term, isn't it? Yeah. Ab- absolutely, absolutely. And uh, investment in grain storage equipment is very much a long-term investment. Um, the minimum period that uh, any equipment will be going out for would be 15, 20, 25 years. And uh, really looking over those um, time horizons, um, business is good. Just talk us through some of the products you've got then for those that don't know about you. So the uh, mainstay of the business and what it originally started from was with the Mechmar mobile grain dryer. Um, those machines have really changed a lot from being a 12-ton tractor-driven machine that rattled in the corner of the yard to now the average machine size would be 24 tons. It would be electric-driven and fully automated. So really the way that that machine is used has changed substantially in the last 10 years. So yeah, you said how things have, uh, have developed and moved on. As you say, with some of these products, you're looking at 25 years hence. It's hard to believe where we'll be in 25 years' time technology-wise, isn't it? It's amazing, really. Absolutely. Um, What I would say is on on your grains drying and storage, you look back 25 years and you look at the machines uh, that we have today, and while they've changed, reliability's improved, durability's improved, the basic principles of grain drying and storage are are established. And uh, so there's very little change in that. So you're able to make that kind of long-term investment with some confidence um, that it's not attached to a fashion or a fad. It's very much down to the basic principles. We talk about um, farm diversification a lot on the programme. Uh, a lot of farms had to go through that, but this proves it does work, doesn't it? This is a successful diversification, which is great to say. Yeah, absolutely. And um, going into farming, uh, 
was never really an option for myself and my brother directly but this is a great way to give us a, um, a foothold in the industry and actually in some ways it's even more enjoyable because rather than working in one place we're working for hundreds and hundreds of farms across the UK we see a great range of, um, of farms and a great diversity of people that we work with and that's really satisfying. John MacArthur of MacArthur Agriculture those uh, open days at Flixborough happening on Wednesday and Thursday. The Farming Programme five-day forecast. Yes, turning to the weather then and uh, wintry showers, possibility of snow for a time should dry out later, highs of three Celsius. That wind from the east-northeast, 20, gusting at 30, maybe even 35 miles an hour in places. Overnight tonight, uh, warming up a little bit, three Celsius the low, still the possibility of a shower, but it should be mostly dry. The wind from the east, 15, gusting at 30. And tomorrow, a mostly sunny day, highs of 5 Celsius. That wind continuing to blow from the east, 20 to 30 miles an hour. Overnight Monday into Tuesday, clear skies. A frost is likely. Temperatures generally of around 1 Celsius should be dry. The wind continuing from the east at 10, gusting at 30 miles an hour. And then Tuesday itself, Valentine's Day, looks like a sunny day mostly. Bit of cloud, 6 Celsius the high. The wind from the east-southeast between 12 and 20 miles an hour. For the middle of the week, warming up a little bit. Possibility of a shower or two for Wednesday, but temperatures peaking at uh, around 8 Celsius. The wind more from the south, hence the temperatures rising 5 to 10 miles an hour. And then for the latter end of the week, we could see temperatures going back up to maybe 9 or 10 Celsius. There is the possibility of a shower, but some sunny spells as well. Overnight lows generally 4 to 6 Celsius, and that wind continuing from the south to southwest at 10 to 20 miles an hour. That's the forecast then. If uh, you are going to the MacArthur Open Day, I hope it goes well. Mention you uh, heard it on the farming programme. Spread the word. Go on. Uh, next week, the penultimate update on this year's beet campaign. Plus, of course, whatever else is happening in the world of agriculture as ever. Until then, have a good week's farming.